Welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. I'm Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? Well, you know, Sean, you haven't seen The Last of Me yet. Oh, yeah? No, how are you? I am super as always, I suppose I should keep saying by now. <laughs> You're nothing if not consistent. I am nothing if not moonstruck on a day like this. Uh, <laughs> I will try another one. I am wearing a mask of sheer enjoyment today. I could have tea with Mussolini himself and still be as happy as I am Wait, right what's now. that That shirt that you're wearing? It's this fascinating substance. It feels like quite smooth, but also quite hard. Like, like it's made of silk and wood. Ah, uh, yes, silk wood. It's a, it's a new... It's, it's a, new, a polymer blend. It is, it is. <laughs> but you have to get hosed down after you, uh, after you wear it. I think oh, we're talking in circles, right? We're, we're talking cryptically, Sean. Um, well... Uh, do you we're, believe... we're talking in code. <laughs> I, I certainly do believe. And if I could turn back time, I might, in fact, not be as cryptic as it appears to be to say, you've got me, babe. You've got me here. What film are we talking about today, Sean? And who stars in it? Mermaids. <laughs> not, the, not the Little Mermaid, folks. We're not talking about an animated, flirty redhead in a push-up bra. Nope, she's no. brunette. <laughs> she is, is an honest-to-goodness brunette. In fact, they're all brunettes. Ladies and gentlemen, Mermaids, in the plural, is a film from 1990? It's from 1990. 1990. 1990. We go back to one of the actresses who has made more appearances in this podcast than anybody else, Winona Ryder. We tip our hat to Christina Ricci, who in her own way became an iconic actress of the 1990s from start to finish. And also Cher, who is a timeless megastar. <laughs> That's true. So what is Mermaids about? Well, I actually have almost no idea. Mermaids, you would think, is one of those movies that I would have seen when I was in my adolescence with my Aunt Jerry, it seems like the kind of thing she would have enjoyed. Yes, yeah, and yet she would have enjoyed it. Somehow yeah. it escaped me. The closest that I ever got to seeing mermaids, I think, was of course it had a sort of breakout hit single, the Shoop Shoop song. Yeah, as far as I remember, the Shoop Shoop song was an old song, wasn't it? That they I, showed covered. I have no idea, but wait, doesn't it? Isn't it one of those songs where it's like? When you get caught between the moon and New York City, parentheses, Arthur's theme, parentheses, something else. Like, it's something, something, the Shoop Shoop song, isn't it? It's called the Shoop Shoop song, parentheses, it's in his kiss. Oh, that's the one. Yeah. So, I always, however, confuse the Shoop Shoop song with Shoop or Shoop a Doop by your favorites, Salt and Peppa and Spinderella, which... But- was another song of my youth. Do you remember that? Do you know that song? Yeah, I do know it. But just to make matters more confusing, yes. I was reading the Wikipedia page for Waiting to Exhale before yes. we started. <laughs> Don't tell me they have Shoop. They have something called, it's called Exhale Shoop Shoop. No, and we can't confuse Shoop with Shep Pettibone. No. <laughs> oh my God. Ladies and gentlemen, we are... Shep, 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 Shep. <laughs> the Shoop Shoop song. Sean, the Shoop Shoop song 
did feature in my adolescence. I do remember seeing the music video, which I think contained clips of the actresses, perhaps actually clips from the film. I can remember often sticking my quarters into the jukebox at Papagino's Pizza in Quincy, Massachusetts on Granite Ave. And, you know, you put in your quarters and you get three songs. They would very frequently be The Greatest Love of All, The Shoop Shoop Song, and then some other thing that I... <laughs> Something from a musical. <laughs> the third one would, would... Who knows what it would be. Gosh, but definitely those two would be frequently chosen. Your future was mapped out for you long before. Well, I was eating pizza with a former nun, my Aunt Jerry, and those two songs appealed to her. You know, Jerry was great because, honestly, a former nun would have no idea of the hallmarks of a young homosexual child. Would she? <laughs> Cutting that out. Um... <laughs> But somehow this riff, Sean, began, however, with you asking me what the movie was about. I believe it is a mother-daughter drama in which Cher is the mother and Winona and Christina Ricci are the daughters. I have a feeling there is an absent father, and I believe it has something to do with Catholicism, which piques my interest and makes me question even more why I didn't see it when I was a child. Yeah. Have I got some of that right? You've got it fairly accurate. I, I mean... And it is a real surprise you haven't seen this. Really, really surprising. It, like, pushes every Brian Button known to yeah. man. Winona, nuns, 1990s. I come on, share us to push that button slightly, at least. I, I don't know. And actually, maybe we could investigate this a bit more. I mean, we'll just say, Winona Ryder, I've extolled her virtues on the podcast many times, and yet, a space alien listening to our podcast who'd never seen a Winona movie and was only watching the three that we've... Um, if Ripley 8 was watching right now. <laughs> the three that we've covered so far would, in a sense, maybe wonder what my, where my affection for Winona derived from. Obviously, she's great in The Age of Innocence, but it's kind of a singular performance. The other two, Girl Interrupted and Alien Resurrection, we didn't necessarily love her contributions. Yeah. But I have a feeling that in a role as a moody, alienated teenage daughter... That is kind of like the urtext of a Winona Ryder role, right? Yeah, so do you think that the roles that Winona Ryder played, like you just pointed out, the kind of moody intellectual teenage girl, do you think that kind of character existed in any other decades or that it came to prominence in the 1990s? In the, in the 80s, did you have characters like Winona Ryder? I never was a big John Hughes person, but would you say that Molly Ringwald, Ali Sheedy were, were sort of forerunners or even like... Are there, like, 60s or late 50s archetypes of that, the kind of beatnik girl? Uh, probably, I think Winona Ryder probably crystallized all that trend as the kind of pretty intellectual poetry-reading goth girl Tim Burton, right? Yeah, I kind mean, of torn between, you know, uh, your heart and head in one direction or in another. And, like, many of the roles that Winona played, even if you think about the age of innocence. Yeah. She has a dualism to herself. Even mm. a girl, girl interrupted, you know, between crazy and not crazy. Only Alien Resurrection has nothing to give her. Yes, sadly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Winona, I guess... Will, robot and not robot. <laughs> she'll forever be preserved in a kind of youth. And perhaps that's why audiences were never really able to accept her as an adult. Yeah. Also why she was very well cast in Black Swan mm. as a person who, right. yeah, who also was torn between youth and age and one role and another. Yeah. I don't know about her. And Spock's mother, of course. As well. <laughs> of course. Torn between <laughs> rationality and emotion. Well, she was full Vulcan, so I think she was, she was you know, that was a pretty straightforward role. Okay. So... 
that I think we can we can set Winona aside. And now I can ask you a question, Sean. Yeah. I believe that in some sense you have been sucking at the teat of Cher <laughs> since you were very, very young. Cher came out with Believe when I was about nine or something. And I loved it. I bought the album. Santa Claus gave me the album, actually. And then there was this difficult period where I realised that Cher was actually kind of uncool and that she had a gay following. And at a certain age, you disavow everything that you cared about. Going to university was a big moment for me because suddenly I could like Pokemon again. I could like Cher. I could like all these things that I liked only a few years before, which I had to disavow completely for four years of my life while I became an adult. It's interesting because we've talked in the past about your love-hate relationship with Madonna, who is another um, pop icon, crossover actress, singer, um, megastar with a gay following. Is your relationship with Cher similar, deeper, more complicated? How would you compare the two? My relationship with Cher is one of deep affection, permanent affection. She can do no wrong. She's never been cruel or mean or nasty. She has good politics. Her tweeting is excellent. Whenever I have something I want to express but feel I can't because of all the vicious little amoebas on the internet, I can find that Cher has already said it for me and I'll just retweet it. Do you think they should publish Cher's tweets in some sort of small book? Yeah. Sort of akin to Mao's little red book, but it would have lots and lots of emoticons. <laughs> well, you know, she, wrote, she released a book in the late 90s. Like It, it was called, like, Dear Me by Cher or something. Yeah, but it was before the advent of Twitter. I mean, Yeah, but she wrote, and she wrote in these very kind of bite-sized uh, ways. I mean, if any celebrity seems to have wholeheartedly embraced Twitter, it is Cher. Yeah. Yeah. And she's excellent at it. Do you think she'll ever run for office? Never, ever. Well, Sonny ran for office. Yes. And in fact, won. He was a congressman. Yeah. No, Cheryl will never do that. She's just turned 70. She doesn't even, like, she doesn't... That's even... no disqualification from running for president. No, I know. Let's it's say true. that. She's running, what, two years older than Hillary or something. <laughs> it's just that, I just think Cheryl's at that point in her life, while she's a prolific tweeter, I don't know if she's making music or even acting much these days. And let's talk a little bit about Cheryl's acting, because this was the first film she made after winning the Academy Award for Moonstruck. And I have a theory about Cher. Mm -hmm. Given the fact that she has said herself on many occasions that she only plays roles who are extensions of herself. In an interview I watched with her earlier today, she said that she took this role in Mermaids because she was playing her own mother. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that wasn't, wasn't much of a stretch. So Cher is a very particular kind of actress. Limited. I don't think it's... Is a, that fair? To, well, no, I think the identities she inhabits are limited. The, the dedication she gives her characters is unlimited. Okay, that's interesting. Can you talk us through? I mean, she, she rises to fame as a music star at a, at a very young age as part of Sonny and Cher. Yeah. Yeah? They have, what, a, a television variety show? They release a couple of albums... You know, she got married to Greg Allman. She was married to Greg Allman for four years. She had a child with him. They released an album called Allman and Woman. Good title, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's a terrible no, title. No, well, I bombed, just so you have it here. <laughs> um, you know, Cher has had many false starts in her own life. Her first film role, technically, was this film called Chastity, which was written and produced by Sonny Bono that flopped. I think she was playing 
an even thinner version of herself. Wait, it, chastity. Is that why their child was originally named Chastity? That is indeed why. God, what a strange thing. Oh, what an unfortunate name. <laughs> but, <laughs> no. you know, it, it goes to child quite easily. Yeah. yeah. There you go. With a false start, doesn't count as a real film yeah. role. So what was her next one? Was it Silkwood? In her Oscar speech, she does thank Mary Louise Streep for being in the first film she did. I think Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean was released first. Maybe Silkwood they made before that. You know, Sort of around the same time. Yeah, you know how these things often happen. But that is quite amazing. Your first sort of two movies coming out being one directed by Robert Altman and one by Mike Nichols, well, co-starring then, Meryl Streep. What an auspicious beginning. But then think about the ones that followed, you yeah. know? You had Mask. You, Peter which, Bogdanovich. Which she won the Cannes Best Actress for. Yeah. Um, there was also The Witches of Eastwick. While not perfect, it's still a, a very good film. Well, it was a big hit as well. It, and also Jack Nicholson was in it too. And... And also, Jack Nicholson was in the Witches oh, of Eastwick. Sean, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Susan... T- they, we're broad appeal here. I know, I'm just saying that we're not Jack Dick Nicholson appeal. is a big star. I guess what I'm saying is, I think you probably walk up to many people on the street and you say, Cher is an actress, and people are like, ha, ludicrous. But actually, as we list these credits... It's sort of undeniable that mm. she's not made that many movies, but she's chosen quite well. I mean, burlesque aside. I know you're right, but the thing is, this goes back to my theory, uh-huh. which is that because Cher is Cher and she's a megastar and she looks a particular way and she sounds a particular way, and while Cher isn't exactly Chad Michaels, she's had you know work done and stuff. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, I don't think she was up you know against Sally Field for the role of Mary Todd Lincoln. I just don't think she's able to play those characters, and she's not interested in playing those characters. Can you please do a share impression of like discovering her her husband's slumped body at the performance uh, of a, an American yeah. cousin? Abe, Abe, speak to me, Abe. Breathe for me, baby. <laughs> I'm going to shoot down that Jesse James. <laughs> John Wilkes Booth, John. That John Wilkes Booth. I'm going to get him good. I don't know why I'm doing this voice, but that's actually what the share impression sounds like. Okay, so... But that wasn't very good, So was she it? won't be doing any historical dramas anytime yeah. soon. Snap out of it, Abe. Snap out of it. <laughs> just, just trim this as you need to do it. Not too dissimilar from my Jodie Foster. <laughs> but there's a subtle, there's a subtle gradation. It, it has to do with the throatiness. Yeah. So we're saying to summarize your your unified so theory of share. To summarize my unified I, theory of share. I I think burlesque was and is as good as she's going to get for acting roles these days. These days, you these mean? Days. So she had a she had a kind of window of actability where she could actually seem like a semi-normal person, at least in the right kind of role, and now. She's just gone too far into the plastic surgery megastar. She could only play a part akin to Jane Fonda's part in Youth or something like that. Yeah, true. Yeah. Because I think she's well aware of her own limitations. Mm. And like we pointed out a minute ago, they're not exactly limitations in terms of playing a character, but in terms of being other characters. Now, as we said, this film Mermaids is a mother-daughter drama. And you've just alluded to the fact that Cher has acknowledged that she was sort of playing a version of her own mother yeah. in this film. Yeah, it's great so, Georgia May Holt, if you're listening. Is that is that Cher's name? Cher Holt? No, her name is Sherilyn Sarkisier Lapierre. God. Some, something I, I, like that. I'm sure interested in... So her mother is of Irish, um, Irish and Native American descent, uh, and Cher's father is of Armenian descent. Wow. Yeah. So it, do you have a sense of in what way her performance is like her mother? 
She's definitely her mother's daughter, if you know what I mean. There's definitely a wandering element, a chancy element. I think Cher is so likeable because all her life she found herself in weird situations. Uh -huh. And she adapted accordingly. Whereas Madonna found herself in situations that she wanted to control mm. and did her very best to do so. It's interesting. Um, of course, we know that um, Cher's dear friend Mary Louise Streep modeled her performance in Julia, Julia and Julia after her own mother. Many of you in this audience knew my mother. You recognized her verve. So I wonder if actually she had a conversation with Cher and Cher was like, well, you know, when I did Mermaids, I played my mother. You know, when I did Mermaids, I played my own mother. <gasps> Why don't you try it, Mary Louise? Oh, we're not very good at this, are we? <laughs> it's hard. You're better than me. Yeah, but I don't know how it sounds until you hear it back. <laughs> okay, um, I want to watch this movie... Is there anything else that I need to know about it? It's yeah, it's great. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like literally everybody we've said we're doing mermaids. They're like, oh god, finally, finally, you guys are getting around to mermaids. Um, of course, I love all these actresses, and Bob Hoskins is a great male counterpart. Um, will I see like lots of praying to the Virgin Mary in this? I think you might. It's been a while, but yeah. Oh my god. Oh, it's also if anyone's listening to this. Don't watch the trailer. The trailer gives away so much of the film. It ruins some of the best lines. It actually makes some of the best lines seem funny when actually it's a film full of pathos. Is it? Um, so yeah. am I going to cry? Yeah, I, I don't know. I've got a lot of really good memories about this. I watched this film with my mother originally and maybe my sister was there. Okay, actually, it's interesting that you point out you watched it with your mother and your sister. So in the, in the mermaid's dichotomy, if... If uh, your mother is Cher, I don't think does that Cher. make you? Does that? But does that make you Christina Ricci in no, this? No, I'm probably or Winona. Winona Ryder. I'm probably Winona. I'm probably just Cher. <laughs> Even as a child, I was probably just Cher. Let's face it. <laughs> All right. Um, just last question: Is the mermaids thing? Is it some kind of metaphor? Like it's a really sort of in between land and water or something? It's a really thin. It's as Cher said. It's the name of the book. <laughs> she just calls it like it is. This is another reason why people love Cher as well. Because like, if you watch the interview with Cher, she's always a good sport. And even when she's pissed off, at least she gives it. You know, she has the, what we'd say in Ireland, she has the chat, Cher does. Madonna does not have the chat. All right, well, let's, let's dive in to the mermaids, shall we? Let's do it. If you want to be having fun, You know, most women's feet get bigger. Only if they marry. Oh, no. You know, your feet swell. When you get pregnant, your feet swell. How could she? How could she? I don't mind that swollen when I was pregnant. Mother, how could you say that she's a holy vessel? What a lovely red shoe. Thank you. <laughs> so, who are you ladies from? I used to live in South Dakota myself. Can you imagine trying to keep kosher in South Dakota? I can't imagine trying to keep kosher anywhere. Yeah. Mm. Will that be all forever, Mother? Only one new addition? Oh. <laughs> Every year, fewer and fewer of us now. 
nice to meet you, Mrs. Blacks. I hope you enjoy living in Eastport. Yes, dear. I desperately wanted to ask what color her bra was and if she had pure thoughts every second of the day, but... <laughs> well, <clears throat> goodbye. And we're back. Brian, you look like a woman who's about to go forth and sin. Please, God, don't let me fall in love and want to do disgusting things. And other very quotable lines from this uh, fluffy little number that we just watched. Mermaids. How did I... I really... In watching this, Sean, I have to say, it is insane that I missed this movie when I was 14 years old. I, I think I kept saying all the way through this to you, this is the corniest film we have covered on Broad Appeal. It is the most earnest... It is the cutest. It's hard for me to slag it off, but I know that if I watched this when I was 13, I would surely have loved it. Nowadays, it feels a little bit too soft to me. But you said before we started recording that you didn't actually like this film, which is con- complete contrary to everything you've said about it. It's just the the artist in you and the dramaturg and the you know the writer the thinking person but like you did like this you know this is the cutest film because it's great and i I mean i was this film is great richard Richard benjamin's mermaids is a great film yes it is okay so why don't you enumerate what made it great okay well watching it i remembered an awful lot of this i honestly think there's a certain part of me that at a certain age responded to the one when on a writer character because i too had a bit of a penchant for older men Okay, well, yes, so what you're saying is you felt like Winona Ryder, she is, what, 15 years old or so in this, 16 maybe, and she falls in love with a hunky 26-year-old, so you could relate to that, but did you have the same guilt-induced feelings that she does, or were you just full steam ahead? Well, let's not go into that too much. (laughs) Okay, for those who haven't seen Mermaids or haven't seen it since they were 13, maybe we should recap a little bit who our characters are. Okay, let's fly through it, will we? Yeah, yeah. So we have the Flax family, am I right? Yeah, Rachel Flax, played by Cher, is the mother. Mm -hmm. Then we have Charlotte Flax, who is Winona Ryder, the eldest daughter, and the youngest daughter, Kate, who is played by the brilliant little Christina Ricci. Very little Christina Ricci. I mean, she is like a moped in this. Somehow I thought she was kind of a little bit more of a sentient being, but she's literally just like a cuteness machine in this movie. She really is. Adorable. I mean, I guess the title Mermaids kind of comes from the fact that Kate is like a champion swimmer, the youngest daughter, and that sort of recurs throughout the film. And there's a tenuous link to a New Year's Eve costume worn by Cher, but it's not important. Yeah, it really is like not a particularly key metaphor. But they're also women. Mermaids are women. Well, yeah. I mean, any kind of maids are women. Yeah. Milkmaids are women as well. It could have been called milkmaids. (laughs) I'm just trying to make the title work. (laughs) Okay, so you said religion figures into this movie, and I kind of knew that Winona was into Catholicism and wanted to be a nun. But what I found fascinating was they're a Jewish family. It took me a while to realize that, because Winona's wearing a crucifix, and she's like watching nuns singing on TV, and she's reading about the lives of the saints, and then... But did you, did you miss that part, though? Where she, I think you honestly must have looked down at one point. She's praying to a shrine in a room, and Rachel Flack sticks her head in and says, Charlotte, we're Jewish. 
Oh, no, I, I guess I did miss that. Oh, yeah, you did. I was yeah. probably taking a note. So they were a Jewish family. I mean, what I find fascinating is, like, obviously I assumed at the beginning they were Italian because in Moonstruck, Cher is Italian, although in real life she's Armenian. So I think she's Armenian, Armenian Irish, Native Cherokee. American. Yeah, so the thing I share with both Cher and Oscar Isaac is my unplaceable ethnicity. Cher mm-hmm. can be anything. And she should play Oscar Isaac's mother in some movie. What do you think? Yeah, but now Cher is kind of like this white specter. <laughs> Like, I don't think she could play, she could play a human the, mother. The ghost of his mother. <laughs> anyway, okay, moving on. Can you psychoanalyze the character of Charlotte Flax? Like, what is her obsession with Catholicism in particular about? I think she's a girl who needs to believe in something. Uh-huh. And she has flights of fancy. And you may notice that she's mostly obsessed with saints. She's basically a polytheist. And the best thing about being a Catholic, as well you know, is you get to pray to different gods. Whilst to... Uh, 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 theology alert. No. No, um, they're, they're saints. The Trinity, Brian. they're all one God. Yeah, Brian, saints are not gods. But they're treated as gods. Come on. They're intercessors, Sean. It's basically just a, a loophole of Christianity that, that ties in with Hinduism. Oh. I pray to saints when I want a specific thing, as if you would pray to a certain God. Hello, Pope Benedict? Could you please excommunicate this boy? Well, thank God Benedict has no power. He's emeritus <laughs> Pope Benedict. <laughs> Okay, so... I bet you don't even know the Nicene Creed. I know it only in a Boston accent. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. All right, anyway, Winona and I share an interest in the intricacies of Catholicism. Rachel Flax, her mother, does not... It's interesting, like, um, Winona does not call her mother mom. She calls her Mrs. Flax. There is, like, a very distinct alienation of daughter versus mother. I think what's going on here is that Winona, the teenage daughter, is acting more like a prude, more like an old lady than her mother is. So describe what her mother is like. Well, her mother is a quite charming, magnetic floozy. Yeah, she's a she's a local. She's, she's a hooker with a heart of gold. <laughs> but Brian, you know Charlotte's just a reaction to the surroundings that she's in. Well, she's looking for stability, right? So in the beginning of the movie, they're living in Oklahoma, and Charlotte has no connection with her father. She barely remembers him. And Kate's father, the youngest daughter, is a one night stand that Cher had when she was working as a maid in a local hotel. And he may or may not be an Olympic swimmer. Yeah. And that is how the little Mer girl got her Esther Williams esque jeans. Basically, whenever Cher gets with a guy, it doesn't last. She's afraid of commitment. She's afraid of staying in one place. And she picks up the girls and she moves from one place to the next. Yeah, 18 times we're told. And doesn't she say death is staying in one place? Yeah. Living is what moving on. Yeah, and a car means freedom. She loves her car. Yeah, and I think that's actually a philosophy that some people have. We know someone who does, whose father said, when you have a car, when you're able to drive, you can go anywhere. You can live in it. You're always able to go. I believe that person listens to this podcast, yeah. doesn't he? Listener. Yeah. David Blasher. Yeah, David Blasher. And I've stayed with me. Because I can't drive, so I'm stuck here, I'm afraid. David Blasher, it only took 19 episodes, but you've made it into the Bar Appeal. Like, read the transcript later. Okay, now I was bursting with joy when I discovered that the movie begins in Oklahoma, but then they quickly move out of town. They pick up and they move to what amazing state? Massachusetts. One of the original 13 colonies, home of Plymouth Plantation. But they actually are not on 
the South Shore. They are on the North Shore in Ipswich. Well, actually, they filmed it in Ipswich. I don't know if they're in Ipswich. Yeah, they're actually meant to be in some fictional place called Eastport. I have to say, despite the colonial architecture and the rugged coastline and the occasional Red Sox uh, memorabilia, there are not that many, like, kind of New England accents, which is a bit of a disappointment. But there's that diving coach who goes... On your marks. Yeah, he did. That was the one time that they made a, a gesture towards the Massachusetts setting. Um, so, and they moved... What a lovely town. <laughs> it what was a lovely, a lovely town. We, we can go to Ipswich in our in our soon-to-happen um, holiday. What do you think? Do you want to go to Ipswich? Um, I'd prefer to go to Provincetown. I've made myself clearer. <laughs> All right. So, the house that they take is next door to what? A convent. Would you, you believe you're it? You're acting like your father now. What? Cross-examining you. And you're saying, now what is the house next to? <laughs> Sean, can I say, like, you have known a writer living next to a convent. This is, like, made for <laughs> Brian. I mean, come on. And a little bit of share for me. <laughs> So, Winona is obsessed with the fact that the nuns live up the hill. She, in fact, at one point, sneaks into their garden and watches them as they gamble and frolic in the garden, tossing a ball around, and then pick up their breviaries and start start praying. Oh, the follies. And, she, and she, she's full of all these thoughts like, I wonder what color their bras are, and do they have pure thoughts every second of the day? It, it should be said, actually, that when Nona Ryder narrates this movie... Yeah, what do you think of that? Um, I was always told that a narrator is the laziest technique. I disagree, and we talked about this when we did Age of Innocence, where I actually think mm. the narration is interesting. and That's a, disembod- that's a disembodied narrator yeah. who never appears. Well, and then there's also brilliant uses of narration in many Billy Wilder films and in film noir. I, in this film, it's a crutch, and I feel like it is a holdover probably from the novel. I presume that the novel is told from the daughter's perspective, like looking at her mother's crazy behavior, because so much of the narration is kind of shots of Winona rolling her eyes and looking off in the distance while she says sort of snide things about Cher. And in fact, at one point, Cher is like, what does Cher say? (laughs) Why are you always just standing there, not moving, not speaking? Why are you always standing there just not moving, not speaking? Oh. And the answer is because director Richard Benjamin told her to <laughs> so that they would have 10 to 15 seconds of narration. But yes, Winona, in a sense, is our focal point. It's kind of a coming-of-age story, would you say? It's definitely a coming-of-age story. Yeah. What so, film are you watching? Well, but I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, like, is this Winona's story or Cher's story? It's Winona's story. Yeah. Like, it's an ensemble piece, but... Winona Ryder is the central character. Okay, interesting. Okay, so they get into town, and soon two men come into their lives. Joe, the cute but ultimately boring love interest for Charlotte, and then Lou, the sexy (laughs) shoe fetishist played by (laughs) Bob Hoskins. Oh my god. I love Bob Hoskins. Sean, are you telling me that if you were faced with a choice between balding, pudgy Bob Hoskins and hunky Michael Schurfling, or whoever the hunk of the day was who played young, strapping Joe, you would pick Bob Hoskins? I would pick Bob Hoskins in a heartbeat. Well, I have such a thing for him. I've got a type, okay? And that's all I'll say. All right. Okay, I agree with you, actually, that the actor that they picked to play this hunky groundskeeper... So, conveniently, he's the groundskeeper who works at the convent. I mean, 
God, it's like it's like that bit in the Decameron where the guy like sleeps with all the nuns in the convent. You know what I'm talking about? What's a Decameron? <laughs> you should see the Pasolini film in the Decameron. It is sexy. Mm. I'll show it to you. I'll show it to you on YouTube after this. Is it in black and white? No, it's in color. Is it in a foreign language? And it has tons of nudity and sex. Is it it is in a foreign language. language. It is in Italian. I'm not doing it. Like all Pasolini films. Uh, oh, okay. Well, anyway, he's the groundskeeper. Winona wants him but doesn't want him. How did you feel about her, like the depiction of her relationship to sex? Well, she is a passionate young woman. You can tell she's passionate because she gets these obsessions. I'm also seeing this at a very pivotal age because I, as an adult, am still always getting obsessed about certain things. They're there, they burn. And then, and they, then they die. Then they die. Then they so die. The, so, like, her obsession with the lives of the saints is, like, akin to your obsession with, like, the gulag. Well, I had a, I was obsessed with the lives of the saints as a teenager. Really? I was, yeah. Saint Sebastian. No, it was, like, say Martha and people like that, you know? What, Martha as in Marian Martha? Yeah. Why did you like her? I liked her. You know, I wrote a play about her. Yeah? Yeah, I did. Do you plug it while you're here? Why did you like Martha of all I saints? I just like she was kind of bossy, you know? Yeah, yeah, but uh, but then Jesus tells her that her sister, like, worships better. <sighs> what, you're disagreeing with Jesus as well? First, you disagree with Pope Benedict. Now you disagree with Jesus? Oh, sorry, Sean's not here anymore. A lightning bolt just <laughs> struck him down. Sorry. Okay, anyway. Sorry, I, I'm a dove now. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, her relationship to sex is like, she she is a definitely a horny teenager, but she is repressing that as well, and these desires are in conflict. Rachel Flack says to her at one point, you, you have half my chromosomes in you, so good luck. Meaning that she is a woman who is passionate and fiery and sexual. I like this about the film. She is not presented as cold or frigid or, you know, uptight she's she's presented as someone who is deeply passionate but from her own perspective she's choosing to keep it under wraps yeah and actually this is the part that you looked down at something instead of seeing what was clearly the most erotic moment of the entire movie she manipulates her way into going on a semi-date with hunky joe and they go fishing and at one point she kind of trips as they're walking down the hill and um, he catches her, and she is, like, being held in his arms, and she licks his leather jacket. It was like something out of a Kenneth Anger film. Mm. It was it was great. I like it. <laughs> well, I think, I'm pretty sure all our listeners have licked a leather jacket at one point. You're in good company. <laughs> Listener Aileen Johnson. <laughs> okay, anyway. Uh, Cher is kind of encouraging this sexual relationship um, between Charlotte and Joe, because basically she wants her daughter, Charlotte, to, like, get the stick out of her ass and, like, get a bit of action and get a boyfriend, right? Isn't this the questionable part of the film, though? Because Charlotte is 15 and Joe is 26. Yeah, and also the other weird thing is Charlotte seems to have no conception of the birds and the bees, which is odd considering how her mother is depicted as this free spirit who is very open about talking about her own sex life, but she seems to not to have explained to her pubescent daughter how babies get made, because at one point, Charlotte does actually end up making out with Joe, where the entire uh, plot mechanism conspires so that the Kennedy assassination provides an opportunity for the two of them to finally make out. I thought that was a good use of the Kennedy assassination. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, the sequence is Charlotte is walking stunned through the town as all the adults look horrified, and she says, 
it seemed like there are no adults in the world anymore. Then she climbs up to the bell tower where Quasimodo slash Joe works at the convent ringing the bell. And he's like distraught that President Kennedy's been shot. And then while sort of crying and looking stunned, they start making out. But the problem for Charlotte, who knows nothing about how babies are made, is that she then she thinks that she, by kissing him, she must be, quote, pregnant with the next Jewish-Italian-American messiah. Was that you? <laughs> yes, she was pregnant with me, a Jewish-Italian-American messiah. So she goes on the lamb. And where did she go? New Haven. I mean, Sean, this movie is like my life. <laughs> she runs away to New Haven. And you're still claiming you didn't like it. <laughs> she sort of ends up being taken in by this sort of much more nuclear traditional family that has a kind of stable father figure. This is the one moment where Cher slash Rachel Flax seems to really think, okay, I need to like take better care of my daughter. And she and Bob Hoskins hunt her down and bring her back. Right? Mm-hmm. We, we talked a lot about Charlotte, because she is driving the plot, but can you just say something about Cher's character of Rachel Flax? Like, you said earlier, um, before we started watching it, that Cher based this on her own mother. I mean, how do you think this character read to you now? Well, actually, I do have a feeling that if I ever was a parent, I wouldn't be too dissimilar to Rachel Flax. And what things would you do that well, she does? she's incredibly frank with her children, you know? You, you can see when, when Charlotte gets testy with her, she goes, Okay, let's play Who's the Worst Mother in the World? <laughs> I don't know, is it me? <laughs> And, like, she says things like, okay, Charlotte, so if you don't act like a little bitch for two hours, I won't dismiss the religion of your choice for at least a week. <laughs> and then Charlotte responds with things like, I can't imagine ever having been inside of you. So yeah. they have this great sparring relationship. They do, but it's the kind of sparring relationship that, that has a certain amount of frankness. So it's so incongruous to the plot that Charlotte does not know how babies are made. Yeah, no. Can we just stay on Rachel Flax for a minute? Like, is she actually a good mother? There's also a childishness and lack of responsibility on her part, right? Yeah, of course. You know, but she doesn't even cook them proper food. She there's a whole kind of running motif about how she like just makes them finger foods and party foods and like marshmallow skewers. I mean, it's amazing the girls were in such good shape considering they never seemed to eat a vegetable. Yeah, I know. Um, talk about how Cher looks in the film. Well, the, the iconic outfit in this film is a big kind of, not quite beehive, big kind of bouffant, like a, imagine like the letter M on your head <laughs> and a, a pink polka dot dress that's kind of form-fitted. That's the look. It's basically the shoop shoop video. She looks hot. She's super hot. She is definitely a glamorous woman in this small town and she kind of stands out for being sexually frank, provocative single woman with two children, right? This is one of the things I said to you, is that watching this movie, I started to understand the Cher archetype in in a lot of movies. It gets back to what you're saying about Cher not having a particularly broad range. Because in a way, she dresses in 60s drag, but she does not act like a 60s woman. And that's part of the character. The character is essentially... A woman who has a liberated modern take on sexuality and feminism who happens to be plopped and planted in the middle of the hidebound 1960s small town. In the same way that, I mean, I don't know, in Tea with Mussolini, she like swans in and makes Joan Plowright, you know, arch her eyebrows because she's ruffling feathers. Joan Plowright's in that. <laughs> yes, Joan Plowright and Maggie Smith. <laughs> you know what I mean? I just what I'm saying is Cher doesn't need to fit in because she consistently plays the kind of like iconoclast 
who stands out. Do you know what I mean? So you can put her in whatever historical drag you want. She probably could have played Mary Todd Lincoln, you know, but she just would have, you know, been like shaking things up and being like, guys, come on, slavery, snap out of it. You know, that's who she would have been. We love Cher, though. Okay, talk about her relationship with Bob Hoskins, who you loved so much. Bob Hoskins, I honestly think I had stirrings as a child. (laughs) I am, I mean, I, I am into bears, you know, I am into bears. Brian, you know this. And Bob Hoskins is no different. But talk about, okay, <laughs> other than his physiognomy, can we describe his personality? Oh, is he the warm, ideal Yeah. caring, is, supportive. He runs a shoe funny. shop. Like, he is so, so good, which is why when Cher starts acting like a little twat. In what sense? So describe what she does. So there's one particular scene in which she comes to, she comes to his house having been away for the day. And she finds that they've had an amazing day painting up a room to make this undersea. Uh, world and they're all sitting down to a brilliant chicken dinner and you know the girls are the girls are, first of all the family never sit down together which is why it's a big deal and she doesn't view it as a happy family she views it as a man trying to get to her by manipulating her children which is which is so far from the truth she says if you want to get close to me dial direct but don't go through my kids that's what's interesting about this relationship between them right because he's the one who craves domesticity settledness right like typically that's what you associate with the clinging woman she's the opposite i mean on their first date they meet at the shoe shop and he's like well let me, what are you doing on sunday we could go on a date she's like why don't you come over for breakfast very pointedly the both girls are out and they have a sex date right there on the first date like he's like do you want to go out somewhere and she's like no i mean this was essentially a grinder date the sex comes first and the domesticity comes after. And it makes Cher really scared. And in fact, at one point, he proposes marriage to her at the aforementioned costume party where she's dressed as a mermaid. It freaks her out. She doesn't want it. And he kind of says, all right, fine. He puts the kibosh on the whole thing. Is that Yiddish? Yes. No, conveniently, he is also of the House of Israel. Funny, isn't it? Funny. Can I just say one aspect that must be paid attention to <clears throat> about Bob Hoskins' character? So even though he's supposedly a Red Sox fan and wears a Red Sox cap for and, and wants to go to the Baseball Hall of Fame, all believable, but for some reason, the thing he wants to see the most at the Baseball Hall of Fame is Lou Gehrig's glove. Now, as anyone knows, Lou Gehrig was the pride of the Yankees. In fact, Gary Cooper played him in a film called Pride of the Yankees. And any self-respecting Red Sox fan would not want to do anything with Lou Gehrig's glove. So come on, that is just a flaw in the screenplay. You know, I do a Lou Gehrig's glove. Uh, we're going to skip that. I jerk off Bob Hoskins' short, fat cock. Sean, you are not allowed to say that. You're going to Fenway Park in a few weeks. <laughs> All right, anyway, let's move on to the climax of the plot. So essentially, at that costume party where she tells Bob Hoskins, sorry, I don't want you to like settle down with me. I'm too much of a free spirit. She gets a a car ride home with Hunky Joe, the groundskeeper. And what happens? She kisses him. She snogs him. But it's not even a good decent snog. She snogs her daughter's boyfriend. Yeah, but it's not even a decent snog. Well, it appears so to Charlotte, who is pissed (sighs) off. And the next night... Charlotte decides this means war if mom is going after my boyfriend. So she dresses up in her mother's dress. I mean, this was a kind of Freudian thing. So, like, her, those chromosomes, like, come to the front. She, she goes to the bell tower with the express purpose of losing her virginity, which, in fact, she does lose her virginity to Joe. Unfortunately, something else happens at the same time. She'd gotten her little sister tanked 
No, not she didn't de- try to. She gave her wine, Brian. Yeah, but then she the sister guzzled a lot more wine than Charlotte realized. Yes, they both get a bit tanked. And she goes up to the bell tower for a bit of stooping. And so Kate's all collecting rocks, which is, you know, a great idea. She falls into the river and basically almost dies. So did you find this part of the movie intense in a powerful, dramatic way? Well, I could remember if she lived or died or not, and you were so sure. I was sure she was going to live. Can I say one thing about uh, Richard Benjamin's direction that I quite like? So the scene in which we go to the hospital and we see little Kate lying there. She's lying in a plastic thing, but we see her hand grabbing and holding onto shares. For a moment, you don't know if she's in some kind of, like, body oh, bag. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or if she's in a hospital bed. Because it's, it's kind of a close-up, and it slowly pans out. And that's quite an effective moment, because you're thinking, oh, my God, no, she's dead. Oh, no, she's alive. Oh, no, she's dead. And this is where the mother-daughter conflict re- that has been simmering and snidely reacted to, like, really comes out. I mean, Cher blames Winona for the fact that the little daughter is nearly died. But really, Cher has been completely neglectful of both of them throughout the whole thing. Yeah. What the hell were you thinking about, huh? She could have died. Your sister, who you were supposed to be watching out after, could have died. What the hell was she doing up there? What the hell were you doing? Oh, I know what you were doing up there. The whole goddamn town knows what you were doing up there. Mom. Mom. I'm warning you. I'm angry. I'm crazy angry. Don't walk away from me, Mom. You're not going to walk away from me. I am not invisible. Talk to me now. Yes, I made a mistake. Yes, I am really, really sorry. It was a big mistake. I know that. You make mistakes, you're always screwing up and we're always paying for it. Every time you get dumped, every time you dump on somebody, and it's just, it's not fair, Mom, it is not fair. I mean, I guess the thing is that Winona's saying that by me emulating you, I have just proven that you are a neglectful and dangerous mother. I mean, and there was this brilliant exchange where Cher suddenly gets all judgmental and says, you know, oh, you're going to study? What's your major? The town tramp? And then Winona says, no, the town already has one of those. And then Cher slaps her in the face. And you know what? This is why you shouldn't watch the trailer, because that line is played for laughs in the trailer. Are you serious? Yes. Okay, well, I'm Which glad is, I didn't watch the I, trailer. I remember watching it with my mother and my sister. I can't remember if she's there or not. But when that when that happens and like she slaps her, we both all went, <gasps> But I have to say... This is what the movie lacked a bit for me throughout, which was like, that scene gets to some real grit and some real thorny, like, issues between the mother and daughter. And you're like, oh my god, this is really rough stuff. But it comes so late in the movie, and then basically, you know, Christina Ricci is fine, she survives, and everything just becomes happy again. The thing that really happens is that Rachel Flax and Lou stop seeing each other, even though we're told that, you know, Rachel Flax stays in the town and she doesn't leave, and that Lou always kind of has a little thing for her. And the last scene, which ties everything up nicely, meaning there's conflict but a happy ending. They're all dancing in the kitchen. Well, yeah, but how do we get from the point of them hating each other in that intense scene to the whole three family being reunited. No, they like, sit down and they talk about it. She says, I want you to stay. I don't want to go. Don't run away. Like, I want to be here. And she, talk, she talks about Lou. And she talks about everything. And I mean, I just think Rachel... Did you find that believable? I'm fine with it. This film is just so likable that... Yeah, it is It is very likable. It's just corny as all hell. It's as corny as Kansas in August. What does that mean? <sighs> Rogers and Hammerstein... You know, it's as corny as a can of Coca-Cola from America. 
i.e. full of high fructose corn syrup. Yes, it is, it is. And that final shot of them dancing around the kitchen and making food and listening to If You Wanna Be Happy for the Rest of Your Life. I mean, it's it's lovely. And, I mean, far be it for me to criticize a final shot of Cher, Winona Ryder, and Christina Ricci shimmying in a 1960s kitchen because, like, you know, I've had wet dreams that are less fun than that. You know? Like, that's great. Are we telling people to go back and watch this? Like, on what occasion should people watch Mermaids? If you want to watch something that's incredibly heartwarming and involving with pathos and conflict and resolution and sexy Bob Hoskins' nice fat dick, <laughs> then definitely watch Mermaids. Except for the part about Bob Hoskins' member. This would be a nice, like, movie to watch on, like, Thanksgiving, like, with your family or something. Like... Despite the fact that it's supposedly about sex and lust and all this stuff, it is not hard-edged at all. Like, you should watch it with your elderly relatives. Richard Benjamin also directed films such as Marcy X. What is Marcy X? It's a film starring Damon Waynes and Lisa Kudrow. Didn't this movie also have some relation to Mrs. Winterbourne? He also did that, yeah. What is it? Tell, tell our audience what Mrs. Winterbourne is. Uh, it's a film where Ricky, Ricky Lake is pregnant with two children. She's in a train accident. She wakes up with none of them. But it's somehow it's a comedy. Does it also have Brendan Fraser? Yes, it does. So during the interview, we actually watched the trailers for Mrs. Winterbourne, Madame Sutsatska, and Mrs. Sofield because we couldn't tell them apart or what they were about. I'm just disappointed that we didn't watch the trailer for Mrs. Skeffington. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are now compiling a list for the new season of Brown and Bill, which will only consist of <laughs> movies that have, like, Mrs. Madame, or Miss in the title. Miss Lonely Hearts, um, what's that Beatrix Potter one? Miss Mrs. Po- Potter. Mrs. Potter. Miss Potter. Miss Potter. Yeah. Right. yeah. Miss Pettigrew lives for a day. Yeah. No one's gonna listen to it. <laughs> we'll have fun, though. All right. Well, great. So... Hail Mary, full of grace, that was mermaids. Sean, we have some sad news, depending on how you feel about our podcast. So, yeah, so the next episode is the final episode of Broad Appeal. Maybe forever, I don't know. No, say it isn't so! No. No, it's not forever, but at least for the summer, at least. Yeah, basically, it is the end of our first season of Broad Appeal. It feels like... 20 is a nice round number. It was originally 10. I know. This was only supposed to be 10. And you just kept asking for more, people. So we, we've given you 20 episodes. We are going to take a summer break and assess what our next steps are. But what is the final film going to be that we will watch on our final episode of the season? The most fitting film that we're going to show for this time of year and this year is Primary Colours starring Emma Thompson and Kathy Bates and I think John Travolta's in there somewhere. Yeah, actually probably you'll discover that John Travolta is the primary actor in the film but it does have Emma Thompson doing her very best Hillary Clinton inspired persona. Well, you know, she says that she didn't she didn't base it on Hillary Clinton. It's sort of the culmination of 90s feminism and this current election season for us to turn to Primary Colours. You can keep in touch with us via Twitter at Broad Appeal Pod or by our individual Twitter handles at Sean McGovern X and at B.A. Mullen Speaks. We do have a lovely website where we put all the past episodes. 
www.broadappealpod.com. And please, 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 if you haven't, subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating or a review. It helps people find the show. Yeah, and if you're in London, come to my night, Nitrate Cinema every Wednesday at the Eagle. Yes, and all I have to say, Sean, right now is shoop, shoop. Now, Brian, because you're editing this podcast... And we're going to say goodbye. I want to. I want to play with the magic of audio editing. Yeah. I want to say goodbye and say that the shoot shoot song is going to play right about now. Does he-